Hello, I'm Alex Zane, film journalist, movie fan, and your host for a trip to the movies. I'm currently in our podcast studio a mile beneath the streets of London, and in a moment, my guest this week, the brilliant Mr. Neil Marshall, will be taking us on his perfect night out at the cinema. Thanks for downloading the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Odeon, and if you've been to watch a film at Odeon lately, you'll know that nothing beats that cinematic feeling. It's not just about stuffing your face with delicious popcorn, although let's be honest, that helps. It's your hairs standing on end, your palms sweating, and being transported somewhere magical. It's feeling every footstep of some giant lumbering monster. It's car chases, space battles, and your heart beating out of your chest. It's about feeling cinematic, and nobody does that better than Odeon. Head to odeon.co.uk or download their app to book your next adventure today. And if you'd like a pair of free tickets to head to your nearest Odeon, stick around after the interview and I'll tell you how you can get your hands on some. Also, if you'd like to watch today's interview in glorious Technicolor, head over to our YouTube channel. And please, while you're there, do subscribe and help us grow the pod into a giant temple of film. For all the latest updates and to get in touch, you'll find us at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod on all social media. Right then, time to introduce today's guest, who I interviewed just last week. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies, where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect night out at the cinema. This week we are joined by a brilliant writer and director who exploded onto the horror scene in 2002 with Dog Soldiers before following it up with one of the scariest movies ever made in 2005's The Descent. He went on to deliver the excellent Doomsday and Centurion, as well as helming two of Games of Thrones' greatest episodes in Blackwater and Watchers on the Wall and currently has not one but two movies in the works here to tell us about all that and take us on his perfect night out at the movies. It's the brilliant Neil Marshall. Neil, how are you? I'm good. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, it's lovely. Lovely to have you here. Um, so I want to start with, um, you probably get this a lot, but I want to start with uh, an explanation of when I first discovered your work, which was at the old Empire, Leicester Square, before they gutted it. And it was a screening in 2005 an early screening of The Descent. And to this day, I have never had such a visceral, almost primal, animal-like reaction to a horror movie. I was almost trying to get out of the cinema while trying to watch the movie. Have you heard that before? Um, I've heard that a few times before, yeah. I mean, we, t- we touched a nerve with that film. Yeah. Um, I think we did for you know, small spaces what Jaws did for Sharks. Um, and, and kind of unexpectedly, I, I, when I was making it, I figured maybe like two out of ten people would like suffer from claustrophobia. Mm. But as it turns out, it's more like nine out of ten, um, and you know people were getting deeply affected by that more than I expected. Mm. So yeah, I mean it was a good result. <laughs> I was I happy mean, about that. It was it was just this wonderful nightmarish holy trinity of of like scares with monsters and the claustrophobia of potholing, that the crawlers, I, I distinctly remember the first introduction of the crawler is where you kind of half see it. I think it's drinking from a, an under, underwater lagoon and yeah. you kind of glance it and it's seared into my mind. Yeah, and, and, and it appears like there's crawlers in various shots before that that are just kind of like in there, sneakily kind of in there. And we kind of blended them in the background. And, uh, you know, we, and we did this thing where we kept the, the creatures hidden from the actors. Uh, and even the actors playing the creatures were hidden from the actors, like weren't allowed to communicate with the actors at all. So, and, and the designs, they, the actors didn't see anything. They had no idea what 
they were getting into with the crawlers at all. So, and then we just managed to that scene in the dark with the infrared when mm. they turn around and see it for the first time. Uh, that was the first time they actually encountered the creatures. <sighs> And the first take was a complete disaster because they literally just ran screaming from the set. So we couldn't use it. like that, that gut reaction that you're after was very authentic, but they snapped out a character and ran away. Uh, and I think, I don't know which take we ended up using. Actually, no, we used the last take because uh, I did a number of takes where the creature was like, the crawler was like reaching toward the actor, like his hand was like reaching out. And it just looked wrong. It just looked wrong. It looked hokey. It looked something wrong about it. And I said, just because it was uh, this actor, Craig Conway, was playing the, the crawler. Mm. I said, Craig, don't do anything. Just stand there with your head tilted like you're listening to them in the darkness, like some kind of weird pervert. You're just kind of <laughs> lurking, listening to their conversation. Do that. And we did it. And it was like, oh, that's, that's weird. That's weird. I know the scene. It's, so, it, yeah. it is just that standing there. That has that there. effect. He's just kind of like standing there like, uh-huh. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I mean, when you, Very look, surreal. When you look back, uh, on that movie and, and its legacy and the fact that it is never out of the scariest movies ever made list. What what what, what do you think about what what's what's your lasting memory of of having created that film? Um, well, I mean, it's obviously I'm incredibly proud of what we managed to pull off with you know because at the time we were kind of the underdog movie. There was another much bigger budget cave movie that like suddenly appeared when just as we were getting into production, it was is like... that the one with Cole Hauser? Yeah, it's called yeah. The Cave. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that yeah. was like, a, that had way big more money than we did. So we were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? But we just stuck to our guns. And you know, I, I set a, a series of rules in making the film about how we're going to shoot the caves, that there shouldn't be no extraneous light sources in the caves, only what the characters take with them. So yes, there will be huge portions of the screen that are going to be pitch black, but that's what I want to capture. Mm. Um, so we, we did that kind of stuff, and 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 that absolutely worked in our favour with the claustrophobia, um, and and then you know, thankfully people still talk about us, and they don't talk about the other one so much at the yeah. end of the day. But it's kind of a it's kind of a blessing and a curse. It's like I'm so proud of it, and yet everything I do now is compared to it. Right. You know? So you have got to like so somehow I got to come up something better than that somehow, if that's even possible, or at least as good at. Mm. Um. I, but I also I never really intended to set out to be a horror director. I, I, action is my kind of thing. That's, mm. that's really what I want to do more than anything. Um, but I kind of got into horror. I also love horror, of course. Um, but horror was a way in. I mean, you've, you've certainly ticked that action box. I mean, weirdly, the last time we sat down together, I was, I was trying to think, because we've spoken, obviously, uh, yeah. since then, only last week, we were talking um, a, a lot about Jaws. But the last time we were actually in a room together was for... Um, a movie that I loved and I remember chewing your ear off about it on my old XFM breakfast show, which was Doomsday. Yeah. That was the last time you and I yeah. sat down together. I know that Craig Conway is obviously in that as, yeah. as well. But oh, it's still one of my favourite premises for a film, the idea of rebuilding Hadrian's Wall in a dystopian future. Well, I've kind of ended up doing sort of a wall trilogy between that and Centurion, which ended with the building of Hadrian's Wall, and then the episode, the Watchers on the Wall in Game of Thrones is... And let's face it, that big wall in, in Game of Thrones is essentially like Hadrian's Wall. So, um, so that's my wall trilogy there. Uh, I don't know why. It's, it's probably growing up in the shadow of Hadrian's Wall in Newcastle. Yeah. Um, it definitely had an impact. And the idea of like, what's, what's up there? What, what was it built to hide? It's like, you know, it's like when you watch King Kong and you're like, okay, I get this big wall there. So what were they hiding behind Hadrian's Wall? And that inspired Centurion. But with Doomsday, it was that, you know, what if they rebuilt it? What would be a reason to rebuild it? And now, of course, post-COVID, 
You know, there was a day during COVID when they closed the border between England and Scotland. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> it's happening. It's really happening. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to build the wall. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, you mentioned the the Game of Thrones episodes you directed. Two two of the the best um, in uh, towards the end of season four, I think. I think it was. And um, I mean, you sort of moved into prestige TV, like high end TV. You know, it was Westworld, Black Sails, and obviously these two Game of Thrones yeah. episodes. What was the decision about doing that? For, did you want to try your hand in that environment? And did you want to? Were you being a? Were you being offered action to direct, which obviously you wanted to do? Yeah. Uh, it was it was part necessity, part choice of like I was. It was really at that particular time, the the kind of funding sources to make my features in the UK had kind of stopped or dried up. Salador, uh, who financed Centurion and Descent, uh, basically kind of Salador Films had like decided to quit while they were ahead. They they did Slumdog Millionaire, mm. you know, won all these Oscars and stuff like that, and thought <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll stop now. We'll end on a, we'll end on a high note. What a weird decision though. It's, not, <laughs> so like, it's not going to get better than this. So let's just stop. <laughs> so anyway, so they packed that in, uh, and Pathé they, they kind of they, they weren't going to do financing anymore. They were going to stick to distribution. So it was kind of like, well, I couldn't get films financed here. But then by uh, 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 not really chance as much as anything, but because I'd done Centurion, a lot of the crew, particularly the stunt coordinator, Paul Herbert, and the horse master, Camilla Napru, went from that onto Game of Thrones. And then come to the end of season two of Game of Thrones, they were doing, they were preparing to do the Battle of Blackwater, their first big battle sequence, yeah. battle episode. And uh, their original director dropped out at the last minute. I don't know who it was, I don't know why he dropped out, but right. he dropped out with like two weeks before filming. And so I get a phone call on this Saturday morning saying, uh, Paul Herbert just gave us your phone number and showed us Centurion and like, we can see what you can do. Will you come and direct this episode for us? And I was like, yeah, how long do I get to prep it? Like, a week. <laughs> oh <laughs> my week. God, because yeah. those are epic battles, both of yeah, them. That was a busy week. Um, Jeez. So, the se- I mean, the second one, Watch on the Wall, that was a couple of years later and I had four or five weeks to prep that. Right, one. right, right. Blackwater was a week's prep. It was nuts. Absolutely yeah, nuts. Nominated for awards, a standout episode and what have you. That's but it was an incredible experience. I mean, it was a great bunch of people involved in that show. Mm. Uh, really, really, you know, and the writers as well, the creators, very embracing of a director's opinions and thoughts or whatever. And what I basically did with that was, because the script initially, it made no sense as a battle. It, like, it, it had to make logical sense as a battle. And I'm, if, when I'm not studying films, I'm also into kind of military history and stuff like that. So... Um, I applied that kind of learning to the, the script to say, well, this is what they should be doing. So giving them siege ladders, giving them a battering round, giving them stuff that they could do uh, was all part of that process. So what was because writing action in a script is, is, is a funny old business anyway. You, you hear some writers talk about how, you know, famously, I think it, it was like, this is the greatest car chase and they leave and that's it. And they leave it to the stunt coordinator and the director. I to could visualize. never do that. Never do that. No. It's like, I'd, I'd rather hand all the, the drama stuff to somebody else and do that. <laughs> like, honestly, like, I think my dream job would be to, like, a second unit action director on, like, a Bond movie or something like that. I think that would be awesome. <laughs> Just because I've done that stuff where you're working with the stunt teams and you're doing action. I mean, the, the, the car chase on Doomsday oh, God. Yeah. was talked about as being, like, a second unit thing. I said, no way. I said, so we, we basically scheduled two weeks at the end of the schedule. Mm. And we, we added it on and we did it all there. So I was there every day to do all the stunts and everything like mm. that. It's like, cause, yeah, because that's, 
I can't hand that over to somebody else. Because there's a language to it. It's a bit of an action junkie. I mean, that that car chase, you know, I, I, I'm sure you know this better than me. So, I, you know, I'm not uh, I'm probably telling you what you already know. But for, for anyone who doesn't, it, it, it's like there is there are, there are beats. It's like there's other, it's like a little waveform. And then obviously with the exploding buses, the, 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 yeah. the car goes through it. It's like that's your fist in the air moment. Definitely. Yeah, it's trying to it's trying to create a momentum. I mean, every good action sequence is a movie unto itself. It's just have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and have you know drama and story unfolding with the action. So yeah, yeah. And um, I left a movie out of the introduction because I, uh, you know, I, we don't have to talk about it. But obviously, it is uh, you know a, a big studio movie. But I think you've kind of washed your hands of it, which is why <laughs> I, I didn't bother to mention it. Which is obviously the uh, the famous Hellboy uh, reboots. That's that's infamous. Kind of, I think. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you, that, that's, yeah. You've you've basically excised that from your CV. That's not yours, really. Well, I, I don't have a tattoo of that one on my arms. <laughs> I love that. I couldn't believe that when you show me, you've got tattoos of all your movies. And you only get, only the stuff that I've written and directed so right. like I don't have any of the TV stuff sure. and I don't have Hellboy because I didn't write that so it's just the films I've written and directed so I, I'm, I just kind of mark each one as a tattoo so That's yeah because cool. it was like I, I wanted to get a tattoo and it's like well what is the most personal thing I could get mm. I just thought well it's, it's my my little movie babies yeah. you know but no, so, no yeah. Hellboy though no Hellboy no no, no. I mean, I, I don't know. I, 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 you know, I, I get people coming up to me all the time saying that they loved it. I, I honestly, I didn't want to say it because I didn't know what your reaction to people saying that might be. But I, 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 I kind of enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I was. It's, it's just that there's nothing of me in it, right? It's not. Uh, you know, it was. I was completely like overruled on everything on that movie, and it was an unpleasant experience because of it. Right. So I don't. It's not a treasured memory in any way, shape, or form. Mm. And uh, and I always thought the script was ropey as fuck. So, um, so yeah. So I I don't have any great passion for it. But no. I'm glad other people like it if they get something out of it. Mm. That's that's fine. Yeah, I think people wrongly attributed one aspect of it to you, which wasn't wasn't yours, which was the gore, because you're famously yeah. you know a great a, a great gore head. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but actually, that, you'd have done it practically, right? I would have done it as practically as possible. Yeah. Mm. I mean, coming off Game of Thrones, my idea was, that, you know, I wanted the giants uh, to be, you know, real guys and do them in the same method that we did on Game of Thrones because those giants on Game of Thrones, they're, fl- they're flawless. Mm. They're photo- photographically real because they are real. They're just blown up and put into shots and it looks great. So I said, well, let's do that with this as well because it'll look fantastic. And they were like, no, 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 we're going to do it all CGI and we get a big cartoon mess instead. So mm. it's like, whatever. Fine. Fine. Well, let's look ahead to uh, more exciting on. stuff, um, stuff that you have written and directed uh, with your uh, your uh, writing partner uh, and partner, Charlotte Kirk. Um, ex-partner. So, oh, ex-partner. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't know. That's my, that's my bad. Uh, Excuse. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, okay. So uh, you've got a couple of movies coming out, uh, though, which is obviously uh, one of them you're getting a tattoo for today. Uh, let's start with uh, Duchess. Um, yes. First of all, so this is this is uh, I, I, you can tell me more in more detail. It's a, it's a crime thriller, a violent crime thriller. Uh, yeah, I think the violence kind of you know <laughs> that's, that's inherent. Sure, <laughs> sure I would be wait. It's a it's a romantic crime thriller. <laughs> it is a romantic crime thriller with violence as, and as well. But uh, no, it, it's it was I wanted to do a gangster movie. Right, uh, it's a female uh, gangster movie um, about this uh, East End London girl who falls in love with a diamond smuggler. Uh-huh. And uh, he's running a kind of operation out of Tenerife in the Canary Islands, yep. smuggling in diamonds from Africa and stuff like that and doing this his thing. And she gets involved in that whole thing, but then it all goes tits up when there's a betrayal and then she ends up going on this mad quest for revenge at the end of it and ends up kind of taking over the whole cartel. Cool. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. A very different, 
you know, change of pace for me. Mm. Uh, but a lot of it's still action packed, lots of shootouts and mm. yeah, you know, some brutality. Sounds good. That sounds good. So, so that was in Tenerife, and yet the <clears throat> excuse me, the movie you're getting a tattoo for today. Not, would it? Would I be fair to, Would I be right to say that this is a, a, a dipping your toe in a, a, another genre that you previously not explored, which is a psychological crime thriller? This is compulsion, a, a psychological yeah. thriller. Sorry. Well, yeah, it was. It's like two different genres that I wanted to do. One was it's an erotic thriller, right? Because I love those great erotic thrillers from you know the nineties, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Basic Instinct, uh, Fatal Attraction, Single White Female, all that kind of stuff. That whole genre. And I was talking to some distributors, and they were saying, you know, there's a real market out there for this, but nobody's making them. So I was like, oh, you know, what the hell? Let's let's try and make an erotic thriller. But I was also while I was doing that, I was drawn into like, well, I'd like to do like a giallo type film. Mm. Uh, and combine the two. So it's kind of a little homage to Giallo and it's, you know, erotic thriller. Everything's kind of thrown in there and it's psychological and it ends in lots of bloodshed, of course. That's great. So yeah. you're, you're, you're a busy man at the moment. It has. I mean, I shot um, um, yeah, what was a Duchess, you know, summer of 22. Right. Uh, we finished that completely in like February, March of this year. Mm. Um, it went, it played in Cannes at the, at the market screening in Cannes. So we're just in the process of like selling that now. Uh, and it, we did it in a different kind of way, which was like we fully financed it uh, without selling any territory. So it's like it's finished, but it's ready to be bought by somebody. Right. Be it uh, Netflix globally or maybe individual, independently like around the world, whatever. Um, and then... Um, Does that give you more control then? Over? It gives you more control. But like, so what happened with The Lair mm. was that that was financed mainly out of pre-sales. So you, you've essentially... You've sold your movie and got the money for the sales to make it. So then, once it's made, you're just handing it over to those people. And there's like, well, where's where's our where's our income come from that? Where does the, <laughs> sure. the profit come from that? I mean, obviously, like the ideal is that you sell it for more than you make it. But if you end up not or you break even, it's mm -hmm. like, well, there you go. So the thought of having a finished film, especially now with you know streamers and such, like you know that that beast needs feeding. You know, the streamers need content constantly. Not, not like cinemas and you know, movies, which you know you can take or leave them, but the streamers need content or Constantly. they will go down. Yeah. So, uh, so having a finished, ready film just to, to show them and say, "Look, this is it's one hundred percent ready," is a real advantage. And then it's just a case of you know selling it for the best bidder. That's exciting. So, I wonder with the lair, which I love, by the way, it's like a return to sort of the, the the horror comedy, like soldiers against a monster thing, like the dog soldiers vibe yeah. from you know daft um, fun. I think was what I was aiming for was like just a fun B movie, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's great. Like used to get Cannon would make or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> just, like, just practical monsters and explosions and you know. More bloodshed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm sensing a theme. Uh, but There's a definite theme to the work. Anyone yeah. who's aware of your work uh, will be like, yep, of course, bloodshed. There should be no surprises, really. That must be weird, though. So, so you're making the lair and you sell the uh, in advance, so you get money. But the, And obviously, you know, that money goes into the movie. But you're, you're the creator of the movie. You, you're, you're constantly must be fighting that battle going, I, if I spend, you know, another 20 grand on this scene... Yeah. Uh, it would be so much better, but then that twenty grand is just gone. I'm never going to make that back. Like the artist versus the business, constantly, man. constantly. But the the model for financing movies, it's like it feels like it's changing on a daily basis. Mm. Like how independent filmmakers are going to, you know, are surviving or trying to survive in the in the new world. It's it's very very difficult, very mm. difficult. You know, back in the days, even even uh, obviously back in the days when movies just went to the cinemas, you know, and there, there were, that was their profit street mm -hmm. you know from box office 
And then it, then the golden days were when we had that plus DVD, you know, and then films could really make some money back. Mm. But now it's like it's so difficult for filmmakers to make their money back if they're not involved in the, the, a bigger budget studio film. You know, it's, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, the landscape is strange Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, there was a period where studios were looking for original ideas, but now it, it seems to be like really small, small movies or... Your, your behemoths, it's like, you know, they're spending $250 million on, on, an, on an event movie that they then need to make back. So they're funneling yeah. everything into that because it's like that's why people go to the cinema for these big IPs. For the event, mm. yeah. But then the flip side of that is that, you know, streamers or whatever should, by rights, be buying up lots of content because they need it. Mm. Well, they are, but they're buying it for peanuts because, they, they, you know, they know the filmmakers have to sell their product. So they're kind of like, oh, well, we'll just give you, you know, nothing for it, essentially. Mm. We'll, we'll We'll pay bottom dollar for it because you have no other choice. Mm. So it's kind of, you know, the filmmakers are suffering at the end of the day, as, as we always do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've tortured artists, right? It's, yeah, a, it's a thing. It's, it, is, it is the way of things. It's a thing. All right, well, seeing as we are talking about cinema, let us head to our virtual cinema. I'm excited about this. You're about to enter another dimension, Neil, where our virtual cinema awaits. You are our guide. We are your audience. Let's go on a trip to the movies. So we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer. There's an excited buzz, as there always is in a cinema foyer. The hum of anticipation. It's your perfect cinema trip, Neil. Who are you picking, living or dead, to go with you? Uh, well, I picked the, the, the guy who inspired me to make films in the first place, which is uh, Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg. I thought I'd aim high. That's, <laughs> it's great. It's your perfect night. Steve. He's kind of like the ultimate movie geek, so I thought he'd be a good person. To, to go with, and presumably he wouldn't talk all the way through the film or be on his phone. So that, that's, that's always a good choice if he was. Can you that'd imagine? That would be so disappointing. <laughs> just on WhatsApp, just playing Candy Crush while yeah. the movie's on. And when did you first, what was, your, what was your introduction to Spielberg? Well, I probably what we talked about the other day was probably seeing Jaws on the mm -hmm. TV you know, for the first time. But for me, the thing that changed my life was seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark. I was 11 years old. I saw Raiders at the cinema and I saw the making of Raiders on TV. And it was the combination of the two that was like suddenly like, oh, I understand that. I understand it now. Like this makes that. And I love that. So I want to do this. <laughs> and that was it. It was like, I want to do that. And I was 11 years old and, and uh, my best mate at the time, uh, uh, Mike Johnson, who's now a screenwriter, a very successful screenwriter, wrote Sherlock Holmes and things like that. We got hold of his, his mom's cine camera Super 8 camera. Uh -huh. And within weeks, we were making our own movies. So, I mean, you were literally doing what Spielberg was doing when he was a kid because of Spielberg. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I think for our generation, there's a lot of, lot of filmmakers who had that same story of like, well, we just got hold of a camera and we just started shooting shit and learning the process. And it was. You just had a camera and we shot it. We got the film back and we edited it and, um, you know, put music to it and got a got a, a, a microscope and a needle and scratched animated effects on frames really to, so you could have somebody have lightning come out of their fingers or something like that like just just ridiculous stuff yeah have you still do you still have these are they somewhere like locked and I, I still have them i still have them wow i'll send you a couple for a laugh sometime yeah i'd love to see <laughs> them that's amazing that's like, amazing because they're all they're all like indiana jones ripoffs they're all like either me or him trying to be some like because like we had some local woodlands so we'd like go there and like pretend it was the jungles of peru and you know try and do stupid just stupid stuff really stupid stuff but incredible learning experience yeah 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like we talked about the other day, yeah, Jaws was a, a huge win. I, for me, it was a combination of Jaws and Duel, which in many ways I think is a kind of proto-Jaws. Uh, um, but uh, Yeah, I, I remember. yeah, definitely. I, I saw Duel later on. I think it was one of those wonderful, you know, like Alex Cox did his uh, movie drama and stuff like that. I think yeah. Duel is maybe on one of those I saw it for the first time. Yeah, I discovered so many movies through that show. Oh, I remember, me too. Uh, what was it? Cue the Winged Serpent. Uh, it was never... movie drama and the incredibly strange film show, mm. or whatever. Like just, but the, the movie drama was incredible. Like the amount of movies that I that I saw for the first time, then it was great. Yeah. All right, it's you and, so, Spielberg okay, it's and Spielberg going to the cinema. Okay, there's a clock on the wall in the foyer. It reads a specific time. What time of day have we gone to the cinema? Um, I think the evening. You know, it's, it's a good time to go and see a movie. Mm. Yeah, uh, you would come out in the darkness and stuff like that. It's kind of that's a cool environment to go and see a movie. It's a weird thing watching horror specifically in the day. You want to come out of a horror movie when it's dark outside. Yeah. Sort of coming out into this blazing sunlight is sort of disappointing. You lose the the feeling of the movie more than any yeah. other genre. But basically, I'll go whenever Spielberg's available. So <laughs> if it has to be the afternoon, so be it. We'll check. We'll check Spielberg's schedule. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. For you sitting in a cinema, like watching one of your own movies with an audience late at night, I mean, what's that experience like for a filmmaker? It, it must be quite a thrilling moment to sort of, or maybe perhaps a quite nerve-wracking moment to watch an audience's reaction to your work like, and see whether what you thought. It is. It's certainly terrifying the first time. Mm. Um, but you you end up like seeing it more and more times with different audiences over the years. And it's like, now if I'm watching it, I'm just watching the audience. I'm just like, I'm just clocking the audience to see when they react, how they react, if they react, you know, to the, to the things I want them to react to. And just you know, in, in a way, kind of vicariously experiencing the film through them mm. for the first time again, which is kind of interesting. I think, I think, I think Carl Gottlieb and uh, Spielberg famously used to go around cinemas and time walking into auditoriums for the uh, Ben Gardner head appearance thing yeah. just because they wanted to see an audience <laughs> react to that moment. Yeah. Absolutely, it is fun. I mean, uh, you know, like com- it's, it's with along with comedy. You know, horror is the thing that gets a, a an audible, visceral response from an audience when it's when it works. If you get people to scream or shout or pass out or throw up, whatever it is, or run screaming from the cinema. Yeah, I mean, as a horror filmmaker, you're like that's that's the trophy. You know, that's what you want. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it, it's always sort of bandied around. It's like. This movie made people throw up. This movie made people faint. Have you ever actually seen that happen, or is it just no? Like... I haven't actually. No, I'm just quite disappointed. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think it's real. I've had people leave, but I've certainly not seen anybody throw up. Yeah. It must be one of the the few genres where someone leaving is like, yes, it worked. I've something I... like that. But then you're like, oh, I'll just go to the bathroom. Like, what are you going to the bathroom for? In the middle of the film. <laughs> oh well, we'll come to that. I am a man with a weak bladder, so um, so I am one of those people. But look, you book the tickets, Neil. Where are we going to sit when we get into the auditorium? Favorite seat? I mean, I've always been kind of somewhere in the middle. Like it's got to be like center onto the screen, ideally, and then not too far to the back and not too far to the front. It's kind of like somewhere in that middle zone. It depends on the the, the auditorium as well. If it's going to be one of those ones where people are blocking your view, mm. I mean that's a bit of a pain in the ass. So you have to go a little bit closer. Because um, I, I did it one one of those cinemas. I had to have some like. I must have been a basketball player or something like that. It must have been like seven foot tall sitting in front of me, like throughout the screening of something or the Titanic or something like that. You're like watching the, it's like painful. Oh my God. So thankfully like gallery cinemas, you know, that's the way to go always. Um, but yeah, somewhere, you know, 
front and center. It's weird, isn't it? I still have that thing because, you know, I, I, I grew up when, you know, you couldn't, once you got to your seats, you know, there was someone right in front of you, someone right behind you. You were kind of trapped in. Yeah. And I always still book aisle seats for myself because I'm like, I just need to, some space. I don't want to be trapped in the, in the middle. And then you get to the cinema and the aisles are wide. The seats are like so spaced out. Cinemas now are not like, I still have this memory the of what they recliners and oh. things. Like, yeah. Yeah. Very different. All right. We're going to sit in the middle, but dependent on the cinema. Do you have a favorite cinema in the world that you ever had the best experience in? Um, I'd have to say that the, the well, the cinema that I had the best experiences in has been, since been knocked down. Oh. Which was my old Odeon cinema in Newcastle where I first saw Star Wars and Raiders and any number of movies. That was, that was the place to go on a Saturday afternoon. Um, this is a this is a fantastical cinema trip. We can rebuild that cinema for you. Well, fun, funnily enough, so the story there is that we managed to have the world premiere of Dog Soldiers in that cinema. Then two months later, it shut down, and then it was shut down for years. And then they finally demolished it, like about three years ago. And a friend of mine who happened to be working in an office across the road ran across the road and he grabbed hold of a brick. And he, he's still got this brick he's got to give to me. So maybe like in some kind of weird kind of Jurassic Park style thing, can we, from this brick, can we rebuild the whole cinema? <laughs> oh my god! From the DNA of the cinema. DNA. <laughs> I wonder. Maybe though. maybe all the you know if if like haunted houses as they say it's in the the, the stones. Right. Like all the memories of that cinema are somehow in this brick. It could be important. Uh, uh, all right. Pitch that. That's a movie pitch right there. The the the, yeah. the brick. The, the Odeon Pilgrim Street. Can it live again? Oh my god! I was I, I, while you were saying that, I was trying to remember <clears throat> what what movie like has a similar theme, and it, it's it's the weirdest reference. It was a modern take on Jack the Ripper with David Hasselhoff. I think it was a TV movie where they moved London Bridge to America. And in the present day, someone pricks their finger and the blood lands on a brick and it recreates Jack the Ripper and he goes on a killing spree in modern-day America. That's fantastic. I love it. So I think, unfortunately, haunted but bricks the, may have been done. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, because if you put a haunted brick into a new house, does it make the, the whole house haunted? Oh, yeah, that hasn't been done. That's good. Okay. Yeah. Right, we'll put them a Something in there. We'll, we'll <laughs> right snip down. that. Let's not, let's not broadcast that. That's an idea. Okay, final thing we need. What are we choosing to eat from? Oh, the smells. The smells in the foyer, all snacks, all manner of food stuff are available. What are we having to eat? Uh, I've always been a, a hot dog fan. You, you want those hot dogs? That are, a really good hot dog there. So these hot dogs, you're either all in or all out. People are like, I would never have a cinema hot dog, or people are like, they're the greatest thing in the world, and you're on the greatest thing in the world side. When it's, when it's done right. I mean, so, you know, there's some really shitty hot dogs mm. out there but in cinemas, but a really good one is amazing. So what a really good one is still... And you've got to go large. <laughs> large hot dogs. So yeah. they're, they're the Frankfurtery ones. They're, they're, they're just yeah. like, they're proper. And proper hot dog with mustard, ketchup, yeah. the works. We used to be able to get, I mean, we used to be able to get them with onions and stuff like that in the cinema, but I don't think you can anymore. I don't think you can either. The works. We'll just call it the works. And are we having a drink? Uh, yeah, sure. I'll have a, I don't know, Coke. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Nothing I mean, very adventurous. On you the, can have drink. anything. Do can I have a beer? You can have a beer. Dog and a beer. You want a beer? All yeah, right. Okay. To, to quote Field of Dreams, dog and a beer. <laughs> well, I think we might be coming to that shortly. Any popcorn though? No popcorn? Uh, I'm not that bothered. I can live without the popcorn. Wow. I mean, if I do, yeah, if it's there, I'll eat it, but I'm, I, I think I'll stick with the hot dog. You wouldn't purchase popcorn, even though it's a sort of cinema staple. I mean, it's like, is it not part of the nostalgia of being a kid and going to the cinema when there wasn't? Uh, this, it this... used to be, what was it, um, 
toffee sun kiss toffee kiss. Oh, it's yeah. like some kind of butter kiss butter kiss yeah, yeah that's what we used to the smell of butter kiss reminds me of cinemas okay but the new stuff doesn't you know it's all it's all fresh it's all, <laughs> it's as, all. as fresh as popcorn can ever be yeah, yeah it's very fresh no popcorn then that's great we're just having a we're having a hot dog and a beer Mm-mm-mm. right let's get out of the foyer and make our way towards the auditorium so the cinema corridor towards the auditorium, it's looking a bit bare. We're going to put up some posters to decorate it. And the first poster we're going to put up depicts your fondest movie memory. One, that's, one that comes to mind is uh, seeing uh, American Werewolf in London during Fright Fest. It was at the Empire Leicester Square, the old Empire Leicester Square, before yeah. they rejigged it. Wasn't that room amazing? Oh, it was it's incredible. just the biggest it's like room. 2,000 seats or something like that. Insane. And uh, it, was, it was an amazing screening, and it was, it was an anniversary screening, American World in London, and John Landis was sat behind me. And he brought along a, a 35mm print of Thriller and the making of Thriller to show before the movie as well. But... What made it so memorable was that Landis basically gave us a running live commentary of Thriller and the making of Thriller and American Werewolf as it was happening, like telling us everything. Well, that was shot there, and this is how we did this. And it was was incredible, absolutely incredible. And then to walk out of the cinema, and he realized he just next door to Piccadilly Circus, like, like, it was like, oh my God, we're in the location. (laughs) Everyone follow me. Let me take you on a tour. It was was an amazing experience. (sighs) That sounds incredible. I mean, what, what? What a thing, I mean, to hear from the man himself. Because, I mean, as a movie, like that movie, as well as being a brilliant, terrifying uh, and funny movie, um, it's just a snapshot of a London that doesn't exist anymore. Totally. And we were talking about that quite a lot at the time, was that not many other films captured that that time and period so well mm. of, of London and, and, and then and the punks and the, you know, the, the porn cinemas and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's this, it's that thing where you sort of walk around. You know, I think when you walk along uh, Piccadilly Circus now, there's a, there's a boots, there's a gap, and there isn't a, an erotic theatre. It's all and, very safe and sane. Yeah, <laughs> I miss that. I sort of watch that. And I go, I'd love to have been sort of kicking my heels around Soho when it was proper seedy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's lost that edge a little bit. It has, it has. All right, brilliant. That's great. Okay, you're putting up a poster. For American Werewolf in London. I, I'm assuming you love that movie. I do. I do. Well, I mean, obviously, between that and The Howling was like, you know, two big inspirations for Dog Soldiers. Mm. So, yeah. 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 And again, I like Dog Soldiers. The practical effects, that that whole transformation sequence is just... Well, like, yeah, and that was like part of the reason I didn't I didn't do a transformation in, in Dog Soldiers because mm. I was like, well, I have to do it practically and I can't beat American Werewolf in London, <laughs> so let's just not bother. So I, what, I, what I actually did was I said, let's just script from um, uh, Carry On Screaming instead, mm. where <laughs> basically he hides behind the furniture and pops up as the, as the creature. And I think it's Jim Dale. He keeps on popping behind the furniture yeah, yeah, and then yeah. coming up and he's got like more hair stuck to him and things like that. I was like, let's do that instead. <laughs> yeah, it's all, I mean, so many transformations mm. in Werewolf movies are done by CGI now. The only one... I, 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 look, it's it's it is not a good film, and um, and and it's CGI, and I, you know you're never going to have the same reaction to practical effects. But I did quite like this one element of Van Helsing, Stephen Sommers Van Helsing, where uh, the werewolf transformation. He actually sort of peels his own skin off to reveal the fur underneath, which again it doesn't look great. But when you look at it and go, as an idea, that's quite interesting. Oh, as an idea, absolutely. There's different way. I mean, Company of Wolves. Mm. has two amazing transformation sequences then done practically, mm. which are a similar kind of thing. One where the guy opens his mouth and the wolf's snout comes out of his mouth and stuff and his face like rips off. And it's, it, it's like, 
that's incredible. Mm. It's like trying to come up with new ways for werewolf transformations. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I, I went for the hide behind the furniture. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great moment, though. All right, the second poster as we carry on down this corridor that we're going to put up depicts your worst movie memory. Ever had a bad experience in a cinema? Walked out of a movie because it was so bad? Been irate with the people in the screening? Anything? I'm sure I have, but I, I mean... I don't, I, I don't walk out of films. Me neither. I no don't matter think... how bad they are. I think it's, it's, it's like, no matter, I think even with the best world in the world, people, people don't set out to make bad movies. Mm. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that they don't make them. I think the miracle is that good make, movies get made. You know, to trying to get, you know, several hundred people all to agree on one thing is, mm. is difficult at the best of times. But if that thing is a vision, if it's somebody's vision, like to get, to make that happen, that lightning in a bottle, it's like that's the miracle is that good movies get made. Mm. It's not, you know, it's not that surprising that bad movies ultimately do get made. Um, but I still see, I'll still see it through. I want to see what happens in the end. I want to see if it, maybe it redeems itself. Who knows? Or maybe it has some other values that you, you, you don't see yet. Cause some, some kind of quote unquote bad films are brilliant in their own way. Uh, they're hilarious or that whatever, or you see, you see the heart and soul that went into it, even if it was horribly misguided. <laughs> you see the passion that went into it, yeah. which is why I, like, I'm a huge fan of some of the really terrible sword and sorcery films from the 80s and things like that. Because they see that they were made with love, but they're just awful. And I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Beastmaster, for example. Yeah. But bad experiences, I mean, yeah, there's always been like dickheads on their phone or dickheads talking or things like that. I can't think, there hasn't been any fights, there hasn't been any fires there hasn't been anything like that so nothing too terrible really i'll just put up a poster of uh some dickheads on their phone that's a that's a good poster dickheads right? on their phone dickheads yeah. on their phone who does it i just honestly it's just or, like... or, or, what's worse is that in some of the multiplexes gangs of kids who just like Ugh. walking from theater to theater and nobody's stopping them they just go in wherever they feel like it mid-film talk all the way through it, get up, leave, go into another cinema, just killing time. And I like that. That's kind of stuff. Just like, this is, this is our church. You know, we are worshiping here. Well, it's because it's because films no longer have the value that they once did. They're disposable products. Now you can watch them on your phone. You can, they're completely disposable for our generation. They were precious. Mm. You know, you saw them in the cinema. You weren't going to see them on TV for another three years. If you were lucky, mm. you know, so like, yeah, I think that's the difference is there's no respect for the craft so much. It is. It's, it's, the, it's the ceremony of the event. And it's the effort of, you know, get, going out of the house, getting on a bus, going to the cinema, going into the cinema. Like, it, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's as simple as if you are always two clicks away on a remote from watching a movie, like, yeah. do you value it as much purely based on the effort you've had to put in to see it? Yeah, I, I think, you know, as I say, they're, they're, they're now treated as just com disposable commodities. Mm. Yeah. Easy come, easy go. But I love the fact you haven't walked out of a movie. I, like I said, I'm the same. I don't think I, I, I take umbrage with anyone who says, yeah, I've seen that. And if they've walked out, I'm like, you don't get to say that. You have to stay till the credits to say you've actually seen a movie. Yeah, I think so. Right then, our third poster before we get out of the auditorium. We've got one more poster after this. Our third poster depicts the last performance that brought you, Neil Marshall, to tears. Yeah, that's uh, anybody who knows me knows that I, I don't generally weep at movies. <laughs> like, not a crier. No, I'm not a crier. Not okay, a crier. okay. No, because I, I might sometimes like I'll, I might well up a little bit. But I, I mean, in terms of like the films I'm seeing, like recently, I kind of start to well up a bit at a few things that I've seen at home, but not 
anything I've seen in the cinema recently because they're not making those kind of movies for the cinema so much. No. Uh, so I'd have to go way, way, way back to probably like something like Field of Dreams, was, you know, which gets me every time. Are we talking about the bit at the end where he meets yeah. his father? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Oh my God, it's my father. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing, the funny thing about that one is, is like I've tried showing it to various kind of girlfriends and stuff like that along the way, and they're mm. all like, I don't get it. Like, what's the big deal? <laughs> like, it was all right. And you're like, what are you, t- what are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> <laughs> just like, you can go now. Then, I'm just going to be here yeah, for a bit. Other guys are just like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. It, which is uh, which is makes it kind of unique. There's not that many weepy movies that are designed essentially for guys. Mm? Yeah, so I, I I like that part. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well. Yeah. But what? yeah, there was a few like ET always got me and stuff like that. Um, but not recently. I can't think of anything that's, you know, really hit hit hard. I have a weird thing where I sometimes cry at, like, um, amazing action in movies. Uh, I, I, I have this weird reaction to if, 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 if an action sequence, like the car chase at the end of Doomsday, like, when all the beats are there, like, I just feel it coming. I'm just like, this is so beautiful. <laughs> I'm going to cry. Yeah, I'm you not... want to weep with joy when, yeah. you, when you see Mad Max Fury Road or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I can't believe this film exists. <laughs> I'm so happy. <laughs> All right, let's put up a poster for Field of Dreams. Okay, time to announce your unpopular movie opinion. The final poster we're going to put up is for your unpopular movie opinion. Okay. Uh, my unpopular movie opinion is that Skyfall sucks. So this is this is the the widely regarded as one of the, this is the highest grossing Bond movie yeah. of all time and, and widely regarded as the the, the best along maybe alongside Casino Royale it's of Daniel Craig's era but you're saying no well yeah, yeah I'm saying no <laughs> why uh, well there's there's a few reasons part of part of the fact that some of the action is really badly staged and illogical I mean, all that stuff with the the bomb in the underground and the the tube train coming through the roof and all that kind of stuff, it's just like that's so bad. And like it's it's mentioned it's at rush hour and yet the tube that comes through is completely empty. And it's like, how did he time him to be standing there as the tube? It's like, come on. So the that logic kind of stuff breaks like, down. The logic, the logic of the of the action is terrible. There's certain sequences in it that are great. I love the Hong Kong, the no, Shanghai sequence, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, that fight and stuff like that. It's beautiful. Some of the photography is beautiful. I like the concept of the siege at the end. Because it was a little bit like Dog Soldiers. It was like a siege in a place in Scotland with mm-hmm. all that. I liked all that kind of stuff. But my biggest gripe with it is I think it's one of the most sexist of all the Bond movies in the worst possible way. Um, that Money Penny uh-huh. is so bad at being a field agent, she's demoted to being a secretary. Of course, yeah. Yes, yeah. She gets him. And she is bad at being a field agent. She shoots Bond. And then just watches the bad guy gets away. Instead of opening fire and killing the bad guy as well, she mm-hmm. just watches him. So it's like, no wonder she's demoted. But they're like, oh, she's no good for that. Put her behind a desk where she should be. Mm-hmm. I was just like, in this day and age, really? That's the message we're saying? And then Bond goes and seduces the girl who was the former child sex slave. It was like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, and what are you doing? She get, arrives on uh, Javier Bardem's island and gets killed immediately. Promptly killed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I always found that quite troubling. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a weird thing about horrible deaths of Bond girls. I think it's I think it's Moonraker, and this comes from me being a kid and having been attacked by a dog. But the bit where Draco or something that the I can't remember the villain's name. He releases those two huge dogs through the woods, and they chase her down. It's, it's a brilliant sequence. It's awful. 
I mean, it's awful, but it's brilliantly done. I mean, it's horrible, but mm. it, yeah. But that's a great sequence in a Bond movie, especially in that Bond movie. It's kind of weirdly artistic in its depiction of somebody being killed by dogs. It's like a horror sequence, isn't it? It's totally. Like, yeah. It was like, uh, you know, it was around the time of like the Omen and stuff like that, and it really felt like something for one of those films. No, but but Skyfall was like just this, 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 the the crimes go on. It's like the um, uh, you know Javier Bardem's character. Um, he was meant to be an undercover agent in China, like <laughs> this European guy with bright white hair, and he's like, huge. As how well. does he blend in? <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, what? Oh, anyway, yeah. just it just had a lot of silly stuff in like that, which was very frustrating for for a Bond movie, especially one that's like the most successful. Um, but hey, favorite Bond movie? Let's put let, let, let's let's button this walk down the corridor with a, with a nice thing. I'm going to put up a poster for Skyfall as your unpopular movie opinion. That it's rubbish, <laughs> slightly ripped at the corners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, graffitied on. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what is your favorite Bond movie? Do you have one? Oh, definitely. I'm a, a huge Bond fan. I love Bond. This was why I was so pissed off about that one. But um, I'd say like of the of the of the you know Goldfinger. Uh, Spy Who Loved Me, because that was the first Bond film I saw in the cinema. Mm. Uh, I love uh, um, On a Majesty's Secret Service and uh, Casino Royale. The, yes. Uh, Not the David Niven one, the, the no, Daniel the, Craig the, one. No, the Daniel Craig one. I mean, I think you know, he started out, you know, it was a blazing debut. Yeah. And then it kind of all went a bit shaky. Shaky after that. But Casino Royale, phenomenal movie. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Isn't yep. it? I'm, I, one of those is, is my favorite, which is the spy who loved me. And when people when people go, "Who's your favorite Bond?" I, I'm like, "It's more because that's who ITV were playing on every bank holiday when I was growing up." It was there was very few Sean Connerys on. It was always a Roger Moore. One. So much depends on who you saw first and mm. where you saw. And I saw uh, Spy Who Loved Me. I was seven years old when it came out. Went to see it with my family at the Odeon Pilgrim Street yeah. uh, on the big screen there, and it was you know seeing him go off the the cliff and the Union Jack and everything, and, and the audience just went nuts, and it was just like one of those primal moments as a kid of like this well, movies are great, I like this, yeah, yeah. Right then, let's head into the auditorium now. There is a queue of people wanting to join yourself and, of course, Mr. Steven Spielberg in the auditorium. Now, do you want to let them in? Do you want a busy auditorium? Do you want to feed off the crowd's energy, or do you want it just you and Steven? No, it's got to be busy. It's like it's, if it's going to be the two of us, we could do it at home. Yeah, it's like so. Yeah, busy. I want to feed off the energy. Want that buzz? You know, a good movie generates incredible buzz. You yes. feel it in the audience, mm -hmm. and that's cinema. That's that's great cinema. When you have that shared emotional experience with a, with a crowd, it's phenomenal. There's nothing like it. Like you know, a, a bit like as you were saying about Bond and who you saw first. It's the it's the set of circumstances in which you see a film can dictate your your feeling about that film. It's like the yep. whole the whole package is part of it. It's like yes, the film is primarily the the biggest part of it, but the circumstances in which you see it, which is why watching a movie at home on your sofa does not create these memories that going to the cinema does. And it can be anything. It could be a great comedy where everybody's laughing their asses off around mm. you. That's really, that's, that feeds you because laughter is infectious. Or if it's fear, like you're watching Blair Witch or something like that for the first time when everybody's shitting it, um, you know, was, was, was feeling that or watching Schindler's List. You know, I could, you could feel the emotion in the audience. I mean, it was, it was incredible. And, or Private Ryan, it was like, mm. you know, this, everybody was shell-shocked at the end of it. Yeah, but we all shared that experience together, and it just made it so much better. Well, the crowd go wild. They're pouring into the auditorium. They're taking their seats around you and Stephen, who are in the middle. Right, 
Let's play a few things on the big screen before we announce the movie you've picked for us this evening. The first thing I'm going to play is the movie you're most looking forward to, a trailer for the movie you're most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. Uh, well, I mean, currently it's Indy 5. Okay. I mean... Optimistic? But, uh, well, cautious. Right, sure. <laughs> Cautiously sure. optimistic. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've come to terms with the fact uh, that it's, it's, it's not going to be Raiders. It's not going to be Temple of Doom. It's not going to be Last Crusade. Mm. It's not going to be like that. Be not because whether, even the, if the film could, was, was perfect in every way, I'm not the same person sure. that I was then. Yeah. Uh, so it's not going to affect me in the same way. It's not going to move me in the same way. So I, as long as I go in with those kind of expectations of like, I just want it to be a good film. Yeah. And uh, I want it to be a good film. And I want at least at one point in the movie that the Raiders theme really belts out full. You know, we, he, John Williams gives it all. That's what I want. You've got, I mean... And I wanted to see him punch as many Nazis in the face as possible. <laughs> Definitely. And Mass Mickelson, I, I've got a lot of faith in him as a villain. I think he's a brilliant actor. Um, yeah, and James Mangold, he's got, you know, he's got form, you know. He's got chops. He's got the chops. Mm. Um, oh, and I hope that the, the villains get a good comeuppance. Like, you know, in the traditional, you know, they used to melt and explode and, you know, go into um, wood rock crushing machines and things like that. So, like, yeah. let's hope that they maintain that because yeah. it was kind of missing from the, the last one a bit. Yeah, well, it had a, that was Kate Blanchett uh, staring at a alien going, I see it all, I see everything, or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, okay, cool. I, I agree with you about the theme. Um, weird, weird curveball reference, but my biggest problem with uh, Joe Carnahan's A-Team remake was I was like, you've got the most iconic score in TV history and you're not going to use it in the action sequences. Are you insane? Yeah. That is like, so what's the point of even doing it? Yeah. Yeah. It's... But you know, when they do kick in, when Mission Impossible kicks in with the theme or, uh, you know, some of, the, some of these kind of film adaptations of TV shows or other movies or whatever, like you want that music. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was, you know, what Superman Returns, whatever you may make, think of it, that opening credit sequence with the Superman theme playing was like, oh God, like, you know, like yeah. William's theme playing was just yeah. awesome. Um, you know, there's been a few, a, a few things like that. Star Trek, Abrams reboot, you know, when the, the theme kicked in at the end credits was like, yes, this is great. Mm. Um, Agree. If yeah. you've got those themes, then use them. Yeah, and you should never underestimate the power of that um, that credit moment. I, I often quote, um, it's Event Horizon, where the prodigy's funky shit kicks in. It just somehow works in that moment for the credits. <laughs> you just like, it's just such a sharp, and you're like, cool. This you've is got that, it's your last opportunity to, to, Give the audience that buzz mm. um, when the credits roll. So if if the Raiders March isn't playing at full volume for those end credits on, on what is you know going to be the last Indiana Jones film, yeah, then something's wrong. So we'll see. We'll see. All right. But well, touch wood. I yeah, I think this might be fake wood, but let's hope. Uh, right. Indy Five is the trailer we're playing. So the next thing we're going to play on the big screen is the moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air. Well, there's the, yeah, there's a there's a couple of those. The one one that's that first springs to mind was that I and I think it's one of the greatest stunts in in movie history as well. Is uh is in True Lies, mm. when um when Schwarzenegger finally grabs Jamie Lee Curtis from the limo just as it goes off the edge, uh and the music swells, the music reaches its crescendo, and they do that fantastic stunt. He's hanging from a helicopter, she's hanging from him, and the car goes smashing at the water. I just think it's like. It was that was one of those great moments of like yes, yeah. finally got the, built up to that. 
And I think that's actually, I, I remember reading about this. That's actually her. She does that stunt herself. She well, was, rumor has it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're not, not 100% sure about that. Yeah. Um, it seems unlike, I, I will say, I'm glad you said that. Because when I read that, I was like, that seems really like more dangerous than like yeah. Tom Cruise might go, I might not do this one. <laughs> it's like a big stunt. It is a big stunt. I'm not convinced that it's her doing that one. Maybe one of the shots is her for, for the secondary part of it or something like that, but I don't think it's her doing the actual stunt because that would also mean it's also him. And like, is he, he's, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the other ones you told me about, which I'm, I'm going to mention because it is, um, you were saying earlier, they don't really make movies that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, make you cry in a cinema anymore. And as I said, I, I cry at sort of like the, the big emotional moments that aren't meant to make you cry. I just get carried away in the moment. Thor in Infinity War. Uh, well, yeah, when he shows up on the battlefield um, right in the middle of it Ugh. was was an awesome moment. That was a bit of a fist pump moment. Yeah, they did, they did that just right. You know, those Russell brothers have got chops and that was a moment of like, oh shit, they're getting beaten and then he's like, he lands. Yeah. Because as an action director yourself, a lot of action, like really, you you, you kind of sell it on the the reaction shots of other characters. It's like, you're as the audience, you're like, that's a cool moment. But if a character on screen references how cool that moment is, it almost doubles your reaction. Like the bit where I think it's Mark Ruffalo goes, oh, you guys are in trouble now. You're like, yeah. oh, wow. Yeah. No, it's a good, it's a good entrance. It Definitely. It's a good entrance. All right, fine. Lovely. I like it. Uh, let's uh, let's go. Just because we're, there's uh, there's a big question mark of whether it was her or not, let's play the moment Jamie Lee Curtis is rescued in True Lies. Now, we are going to play what you consider cinema's most shocking moment. <laughs> well, I, just, it's, uh, I, I thought like, I'll encompass all of cinema with this. I said, for me, the most shocking moment is when Raiders did not win Best Picture and um, Charlie Sophia did, <laughs> in, in, in retrospect, at the, at the Oscars. Uh, not to say that Charlie Sophia isn't a good film, but come on, it's Raiders versus Charlie Sophia. Mm. Yeah, but there's been a few of those. I mean, okay, Annie Hall's a good film, but so it was up against Star Wars. And it's like, well, Best Picture, but it was back in the day when like commercial hits were rewarded with money and other hits were rewarded with awards and they weren't giving out awards to commercial hits or whatever back then. But... The nomination was enough in their eyes. But to me, that, that's um, sacrilege. It's a travesty. It's a travesty. Well, it's... The mockery I, of a sham is what it is. <laughs> good. Yeah, I like that. It's, a, it's And I should, be, I should be like keeping the British end up, as it were, with Chariots of Fire, yeah. but, but still. Which mm. film have I watched like hundreds of times and which ones, which one haven't? Mm, yeah. I, is, I think that is also keeping the British end up. Is that the, pay, is that the, is that the button at the end of The Spy Love Me as it well? Is, yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. But it's also like, well, which film inspired me to be a filmmaker? Charlie Sophia didn't even inspire me to go out running. It's like, <laughs> it's like... <laughs> yeah. I mean, it still happens today though, doesn't it? You know, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a weird thing. The Oscars go, hmm, why are people not watching anymore? It's like, well, because you're not rewarding films that, most people have seen. You're not rewarding bad films. These are good films, but a, a handful of the audience are going to know that movie. They're going to sort of, you know, gone are the days where Titanic or Return of the King that everyone's seen are also yeah. picking up the big prizes. It's good movies, but no one's seen them, so no one really yeah. is invested in watching. But I think also, I mean, at the moment, I think maybe they've started to realise that these big movies are the future of cinema, that they are the things that's getting people into the, the cinemas and they have to respect that. Mm. You know, I think Top Gun Maverick should have won Best Picture because <laughs> it was by far the best experience I had in the cinema that year. You know, it was like I thought it was awesome. 
Incredible movie, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Again, again. Well, obviously, you know, speaking to you about it, practical, doing it in camera. Well, that's the that's that's the cruiser for you, isn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. All right then. So we're going to play the moment from the Oscars. We're reliving that moment. We've got we've contacted the Academy. They're like, why do you want to use this footage? It's like, oh, we we're big fans of Chariots of Fire, and we're going to play that on the screen. Right. <laughs> the next thing we're going to play is the line of dialogue from a movie that most affected you well yeah i mean i've mentioned it already it's it's got to be uh, oh my god it's my father from mm -hmm. field of dreams yeah yeah that, that just floored me the first time i saw mm. it and it still floors me today mm. it's like that it hits you says, hard if you build it he will come he will come <laughs> oh right yeah yeah um right then We've got one final question before you announce the movie you're screening for us tonight, which I'm excited to hear, Neil. But before that, Neil Marshall, what is the best use of music in a movie? Um, I'd say it's a tie between Psycho and Jaws. Straight up tie. You want to play both. You can't pick one. Uh, no, it's fine. You can have. But I'm, I'm feeling, feeling in a good mood today. I like what you've done so far. So I will play both. If I you think need there's both. an, I think there's an inherent connection between the two of them. I think clearly, Williams was inspired by Psycho mm -hmm. for Jaws, but he did something different with it. But in terms of the use of that music in both of those films, it's you know it's it's we it's so indelible now. It's that like we can't shake it from our minds. We think of sharks. We think of that. We think of showers. We think of psycho music. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, so it's to, to achieve that with in both cases, something very simple, mm. you know, it's like either one note repeating itself or it's like two notes. <laughs> so, but it's so simple and yet effective. How closely do you work with compo with your composers when you're making a movie? Do you, do you present them with a final cut? Do you tell them about it beforehand? What you're going for? What's what's I try your... and get them involved as early as possible. They say, you know, I certainly like they read the script and you know I get a sense of I give them a sense of what it is I'm trying to achieve, and then um, then we we talk about it you know relentlessly until as the cut's being done, and then then they get involved creatively you know from then on and actually start composing. Uh, depending on what kind of vibe we're after, mm. so yeah, yeah. It's a, I, I, we might, I might have mentioned this already when we were talking about Jaws the other day, but that famous story about um, I, again, who knows whether it's true, but it's a wonderful story of uh, Spielberg had this idea of this huge orchestral theme for the shark, and he walks into the room, and John Williams goes, "I've got this," and he plays dun dun. Dun, dun, on two notes of a piano and Spielberg laughs and thinks he's joking. But I, I can imagine if you heard that for the first time on a piano, mm. it would sound a little bit, what? <laughs> but when you, when you hear it and it's the, whatever, it's the cellos yeah, doing it, yeah. it's like it takes it to another level. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. God. That's movie magic. Right? right then. We've just heard through the Dolby Atmos speakers, the Jaws, Psycho, those iconic moments of music and here we are. It's time to announce to this excited, ecstatic audience and Steven Spielberg himself, what movie out of all other movies in existence, Neil Marshall, you have decided to screen for us tonight. Well, I put down my first, my, 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 my first answer to the question was based, I, I'd kind of forgotten the whole Steven Spielberg sitting next to me there. <laughs> and I was just like, I would want to screen a movie for, for you know, people who hadn't seen it before. Mm -hmm. And so that thought was like, I, I was like trying to think of something obscure that maybe a lot of people, a film that I hadn't introduced people to, which 
And a lot of there's a lot of good stuff out there. I was thinking like Slapshot, which is a fantastic the, sports the movie. Hockey, Not yeah. a lot of people have seen that before. Yeah. Uh, there's a great film from the eighties called High Risk. Uh, with I, James Brolin, and it's like um, it's a bunch of guys uh, from uh, from the states. They go down and try and rob a drug dealer in in South America, and it's it's an adventure movie. It's got Anthony Quinn, James Brolin, James Coburn. It's made in the eighties. It's really cool, but it's like it's impossible to get hold of. You can find it on YouTube in a really bad VHS version. Um, but I'm like, I want a campaign to get that film released on some form of DVD or Blu-ray would be great. Mm. It's a fantastic movie. I love it. Um, so I was like thinking of those and I thought, well, one of my favorites from that period is Freebie and the Bean. Uh, Richard Rush's Freebie and the Bean, uh, which is a film which would absolutely never get made now. It's so despicable in so many ways so i this is what i this is what i wanted to talk to you about i said before we started there's one of the things that you mentioned to me that i really want to go into because i had never heard of this movie and so i looked at the trailer and the trailer is hilarious it looks like alan arkin and james khan it looks like they're basically improvising most scenes and this is just in the trailer they're both on top form mm. uh the director was on top form it has at least two, if not three, of the best car chases of all time in the film. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenal. Um, it, and it's full of that, you know, it, some incredibly quotable lines of dialogue all the way through it. What makes it so despicable right. is that Alan Arkin's character is meant to be playing a Mexican. Ah, <laughs> I see. And it, it, he's constantly referred to as like, it's, it's incredibly racist all the way throughout. Got you all the way all the way through the film about him as a Mexican. No, but of course it's Alan Arkin, so it's like right. all that kind of stuff. If you can put that to one side and just see Alan Arkin playing Alan Arkin, fine. Uh, it is it is a hilarious, violent, ridiculously you know entertaining movie. Okay, it's bizarre and it's twisted. It's very seventies. Um, the, well, the racism probably explains because I was like, I, like I said, you introduced me to it by name alone. I watched the trailer. I was like, this looks great. How have I never heard of this? Went on Rotten Tomatoes, twenty percent. I'm like, okay, this is. I'm feeling like I'm being told two opposite things by the trailer and by the reviews. Well, I saw it on. Um, I saw it on TV as a kid. I saw it, saw it one time on TV, and it just stuck in my mind. And it's now it's available on DVDs or one archive thing, and things like that. So if you finally get decent versions of it. I mean, I highly recommend that you watch it. If not, if I'm James, going, oh, I'm I going mean, to. it's it's a phenomenal film. Mm -hmm. You just got to overlook, you know, the attitudes of the time mm -hmm. and the casting choices of the time. But it's like, you know, if they just forget that he's meant to be Mexican and just have it as Alan Arkin playing Alan Arkin, sure, yeah, great. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but you're not screening Freebie and the Bean, then. This is one that you thought so, about, and then so you realized. I thought about, and I was like, hang on, I'm, I'm going to show Spielberg this. <laughs> no, I'm not going to show Spielberg this. If I'm going to sit and watch a movie with Spielberg, it's going to be Lawrence of Arabia. Because oh. I know that it's both of you know it's favorite film of both of us. It's also nearly four hours long, so I'm going to get the maximum Spielberg, <laughs> you know, clever, <laughs> maximum clever. time with Spielberg to do that. And seeing it on the big screen is the only way to see it. Uh, Seventy mil, of course. Um, and this is your favorite film of all time, Lawrence of Arabia. No, Raiders is my favorite film of okay. all time, but I'm not going to watch that with Spielberg, am I? Yeah, that would be weird. That would be weird. <laughs> Although he might do a Landis and be like, oh, he might be like, yeah. Just, uh, yeah. He'd be like, shut up. I, I watched the making of at the time, so I know all this, Steve. And yeah. I'd be like, Steve, Steve, how come you've got the crew in the background of shots, Steve? What's going on? <laughs> Are the crew in the background of one of the shots? They're in the background of several of the shots, yeah. Oh my God, I never knew that. Oh, I'll have to point that one out, yeah. Yeah. When I'm... you've watched it as many times as I have with like analytical precision yeah, yeah, yeah. and watch it in 4K or watch it on, it was on IMAX actually, I watched it on IMAX one time and I was just like, fucking hell, that's the crew sitting in the back having their lunch and they're like <laughs> right in the back, right behind Harrison Ford's head. All this kind of stuff, so just weird stuff like that. But that's, it's part of what I love about it. It's part mm. of its charm. Anyway, 
Lawrence of Arabia is definitely going to be in my top three of all time. It's just, it's just a incredible piece of filmmaking. What, what, what do you love about it? I love the fact that it's such an, it's an intimate portrait of somebody, a really, really detailed, intimate character portrait of somebody on the biggest possible canvas, like an epic canvas. And that's such a rare thing to do, and not many people have pulled it off, but Lean pulled it off with that. And, you know, Peter O'Toole's debut performance in a film, and it's just jaw-dropping. And the visuals are jaw-dropping, and you're like, there's, not an, there's, there's no CG. There's not even a matte painting in there. It's all real. Uh, the extras and all that kind of stuff. It's just phenomenal on every level. It's just, it's just incredible filmmaking, and David Lean, you know, how he did that, going out to the desert, building a little city for them all to live in while they filmed it and they were there for a year making it um, and what they came with was you know Robert Bolt's incredible script um, incredible performances Omar Sharif's debut mm. and what an arrival like his, his first appearance in the film is one of the great you know character introductions of all time as well um, and it's just so it's so rich and so deep uh, and yet so visual and that's you know as a director it's like that's what you aspire to and um, you probably know this, but I found a weird connection between Freebie and the Bean and Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> okay. Which is that Peter O'Toole, the star of Lawrence of Arabia, watched Freebie and the Bean, and it was watching Freebie and the Bean that made him want to work with director Richard Rush on the Stuntman. On the Stuntman. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. That's, that's your, my weird bit of trivia. That's that's a good link. That's a that's a Kevin Bacon link. Yeah, yeah. I, you say good. I think you mean tenuous. Tenuous, uh, <laughs> but, but interesting. Thank you. Uh, right then, we finished watching Lawrence of Arabia, and that's it. Neil, the curtains have closed. The guests are milling out, smiling, chatting, and thanking you and Steven Spielberg for an incredible night out at the movies. But before you go, it's time for this week's mystery question. As we ask. What's in the box? I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? This week's mystery question is, as a master of horror, okay, it's an easy one, what do you consider the scariest movie ever made? Um, I don't know. That's an easy one. Okay, good, good. I like a challenge to end on. <laughs> it's exciting. It's a question of what scared me the most. What has scared you the most? Because mine's a weird one that no, people go, right, mine was... Uh, it, the TV movie, It with Tim Curry playing okay. Pennywise. I, for whatever reason, Tim Curry's Pennywise haunted my dreams as a child. I remember being terrified by Salem's Lot on TV the first time. Is it the bit with the kid at the, the window? The kid in the window, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Um, the Exorcist mm. um, floors me every time. Uh, and what I love about that film is how realistically it's handled. Like, And it would kind of never happen today because everybody would want to jump to demonic possession straight away. But it's the fact that the girl's sick and they go through like the medical process of like she's acting weird let's take her to a doctor let's do brain scans let's do and they do all these horrible things to her that are bad enough in their own right before they finally emerge at, at the, the notion of like well let's bring in a priest because there's something weird going on here yeah and then it kind of ramps up to the next level of like holy shit but the fact that they treat it in such a very realistic manner friedkin did that i think just lends so much weight to it that makes it truly terrifying mm. um but people ask me recently and say, what's the scariest film you've seen recently? Yeah. And the answer I give there is, and, and this it's not even new, this is like 10 years ago, but nothing's topped it, is um, Lake Mungo. 
So our mutual friend Janine yeah. uh, introduced me to the name alone. I haven't seen it. What is Lake Mungo? I, I feel like I'm, I'm in the dark here. I've, I'd never even heard of it. Uh, it was released. It got a kind of very brief release. It's like 10 years ago or something like that. I can't remember what they were called. There was like a, a group of films that were, that were released together and that was part of them. Oh, what's the name? Anyway, but uh, so I, I I saw it. I didn't see it at the cinema. I saw it on video, uh, on DVD for the first time. Video. So I know. Look at this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm there with you. I'm like, yeah. I um, miss those video stores looking at all the VHS covers. And it's a it's a pseudo documentary. It's a docudrama or whatever you want to call it. And it's absolutely, it's it's got such a kicker of an ending. Absolutely. But it's full of wonderful twists and turns on the way of like, holy shit, it's going this way. And just when you think it's one of these things, it's like, oh, no, it's not. Oh, fuck that. Where's it going now? Oh, it's one of those things. And all the time, you're just like, because the performances, the way it's done is so beautifully made. The performances are 100% convincing uh, that you think you're watching a documentary about something. And then the, the final punchline, if it doesn't absolutely floor you, I'd be amazed. Like the f- oh my god! So I'm so excited because because I, I I pitch it to everybody and they all go yeah fucking hell, I watched it holy shit you didn't give me warning about that um, and Janine was one of them it was like she was just like yeah <laughs> it's a good one it's a really good one and I've been I've been extolling its vo- virtues for years and years and years the director uh, I, he didn't do anything else which is such a tragedy like I got in touch with him at the time and uh, and we lost touch but it was like you know I'd love to see him do something else but like you know. But even if he only made one film, and it's 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 a work of genius, you know. What a statement to end on! A movie that I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have seen that I haven't seen. I'm I'm personally very excited to go I, away. I, and I watch look forward this. to hearing what you think about it. I hope you don't think it sucks. No, <laughs> I, I can't think I will. Like you know, but uh, but yeah, that sounds great. Lake Mungo. Okay, hey. That's it. Neil, your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality. But before you go, let's recap your perfect night out at the cinema. You are going with the ultimate movie geek, Mr. Steven Spielberg. You are going whenever Steven Spielberg is free, but hopefully in the evening. We're sitting in the middle at the uh, Odeon on Pilgrim Street. Yeah. Yeah. We've rebuilt it with a haunted brick. A haunted <laughs> brick. So it's going to be a haunted cinema. Now, you are having a hot dog with the works and a beer to eat. No popcorn. No, thanks. Uh, we are then putting up a poster as we walk down the corridor. Your fondest movie memory. Having a live narration commentary from John Landis while watching the American Werewolf in London at the Old Empire in Leicester Square. Your worst movie memory. It's just some dickheads on phones. Yeah. Your last performance that brought you to tears. Oh, Field of Dreams playing catch with his dad. The poster that depicts your most unpopular movie opinion. Putting up Skyfall because it is disappointing. In fact, I think you use the words terrible movie. <laughs> terrible yes. movie. Terrible movie. Yeah. And we're playing the trailer for Indy 5 because we're cautiously optimistic. The moment that makes you pump your fist in the air is Jamie Lee Curtis being rescued from the limousine in True Lies. The most shocking moment, we're playing the footage from when Chariots of Fire is awarded Best Picture over Raiders. The line of dialogue from a film is, oh my God, it's my father from Field of Dreams. The best use of music is a double bill of Jaws and Psycho before we play Lawrence of Arabia. We might tease Spielberg with the trailer for Freebie and the Bee because <laughs> it, it, it doesn't mention the ingrained racism, but we are watching Lawrence of Arabia. Neil, thank you for taking us on a trip to the movies. Have you had a good time? I've had a great time. 
Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. It was a good trip. It was a great trip. <laughs> I loved it. And I'm going to go watch Lake Mungo now. Thank you very much. Awesome. And as Neil's cab carries him away from our virtual cinema, off into the distance, we must all leave his movie paradise and return to reality. But to soften the blow, how would you like a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema? Each week we give away a pair of tickets to someone who leaves us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's that simple, so jump on there and give us a review, preferably a nice one if that's okay. And if I read it out, we will send you some tickets. The competition is only open to UK residents and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget you can find the full video for today's Neil Marshall interview and indeed for every guest on our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. So please head over there. And as I said at the start, help us grow the podcast by subscribing. Thank you very much. And that really is it. I'll be back next week when another guest fills our cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye. <laughs>